You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Amen. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10. We're going to pick up with where we've been talking um, last few weeks in regards to the trumpet judgments uh, that God will bring in the future, as well as continuing to see them as judgments that he brings uh, in the present as well. Um, We've talked most recently uh, through the first six trumpet judgments. We talked about Christians being encouraged that uh, current and future destruction of the earth is a sign of the outworking of God's sovereign purposes to defend his people and to warn his enemies. And so We've talked a little bit in the trumpet judgments about the the cosmic upheaval and uh, God changing the earth and God bringing destruction through uh, natural means. And when we see those type of things happening, earthquakes and hurricanes and uh, different different ways that the earth uh, seemingly is falling apart or not functioning the way that it's supposed to be or it was originally created to, that we see that as God carrying out his purposes to defend us and to warn our enemies. Uh, In addition to that, we saw as evil forces arise in advance, we can take comfort in knowing that God controls Satan's realm and will use their presence for our good and his glory. So not only does God bring judgment through natural means of the earth uh, beginning to fall apart, but he also brings that through satanic forces as they rise and fall. Um, We see those as instruments of God's purposes as they may advance upon the earth and bring about death and destruction. They are being used by God for his glory. And then we saw when judgment comes upon this earth, God will do so sovereignly by directing the events, and he will do so justly by providing sufficient opportunity for repentance. And so we see that in uh, Revelation chapter 9, at the conclusion of chapter 9, how the big thrust of all these judgments is to give people the opportunity to repent, right? He doesn't bring destruction upon the whole earth. He doesn't kill everybody upon the earth. He leaves people in existence. Now, what we find is the response of these people is to not repent, right? Um, so God's, God is giving opportunity to repent. Uh, people are not taking advantage of that opportunity. So the lack of repentance is not due to a lack of opportunity. It's due to a lack of heart desire for that repentance. And then we broke off from that the last two weeks. We talked two weeks ago about identifying idolatry in our own life, how um, specifically we looked at, at the end of that chapter, people don't repent of their idols. And so I challenged you as we looked at idolatry in our own lives, how idolatry separates us from God. Romans chapter 1 talks about this. Uh, But 1 Thessalonians 1 says that when we're saved, our idols ought to be defeated or ought to be being defeated, right? There's a turning from the idols, a turning to the living God and serving him. So the gospel defeats idolatry in our life, turns our attention to those things that are most important and most eternal. Um, And then we saw at the end, uh, 1 John chapter 5, there is a warning that we should not give ourselves to idols, that even as believers, even as ones who love Jesus, have good theology, love other people, there's still this ongoing threat that idolatry can rear its head in our life. And so the challenge that I've been giving you over the past couple of weeks is to examine your life, examine the things that you enjoy most in life, and then making sure that those things have not gained an unhealthy uh, place in your life. And I gave you the article, uh, John Piper's article, 12 Ways to Recognize the Rise of Covetousness and Idolatry as a way to kind of work through that. So I encourage you to continue in that mindset, identifying idolatry in your own life. We come now to Revelation chapter 10, which serves as an interlude or a pause between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. We've seen this type of interlude before. 
In verse one, it says, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, and there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Our summary sentence for this morning, we have a responsibility to find satisfaction in the authoritative, mysterious, and certain word of God by striving to assimilate it into our lives and into the lives of others. We have a responsibility to find satisfaction in the authoritative, mysterious, and certain word of God by striving to assimilate it into our lives and into the lives of others. For our kids, even though the Bible may be confusing at times, it contains all the necessary knowledge about God and his plan that we need. It gives us all that we need to know about him and his plan. All right? We have a responsibility to find satisfaction as believers in the authoritative, mysterious, and certain word of God by striving to assimilate it into our lives and into the lives of others. And we'll talk about what assimilation means when we get to our application um, of today's sermon. But summary sentence-wise, we have a responsibility to find satisfaction in that word of God, who, uh, which we find to be authoritative. We do find it to be mysterious. We do find it to be certain. And we're going to see that in the text today. I mean, because of those things, we need to assimilate it into our lives. All right, uh, some introductory notes. Uh, Revelation chapter 10, like I said, all the way through 1115 really serves as an interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. Um, like what we saw with the sixth and the seventh seal. Remember between the sixth and the seventh seal, the sixth seal ended with who can stand in light of God's coming judgment, who can really stand in the midst of this? And then we see that interlude, that break take place where we find out who can stand, right? We find out that there are those who are sealed and protected uh, by, the, uh, by God from the coming judgment, right? And then we see that, that worship scene take place in response where people from every tribe, nation, and tongue are glorifying in that sealing process, that they've been saved and delivered from God's coming judgment. We're going to see something very similar here in Revelation chapter 10 and into chapter 11, that interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet judgment. All right. As we look at this chapter, um, I think obviously one of the first confusing aspects is who is this figure that shows up on the scene in Revelation 10 and begins to speak to John? Who is this angelic figure? It's 
uh, it's referenced as a mighty angel, which is similar to what we find in Revelation chapter 5, verse 2. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So we see another mighty angel referenced in the book of Revelation here, all the way back in Revelation 5, um, as we begin to unfold the sealed judgments. Um, and and uh, it's a mighty angel that's listed. We find Jesus popping up later in that discussion, later in that chapter, as he is revealed to be the lamb who is worthy to break the seals of that scroll. Um, in, in looking at commentaries, I would say the bulk of the commentaries believe this figure to be Jesus, okay? And there's a lot of strong evidence for that, and I want to show that to you. Um, while it's not clearly revealed that way, there are references here in... Let me go back to Revelation 10. The description of this, this figure. Coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face like a sun and his legs like pillars of fire. The references to the cloud here, uh, almost always associated with, with either God the Father or God the Son. Um, the idea of the rainbow uh, pops up in Revelation chapter 4, verse 3. And clouds are always, almost always associated with judgment. And so it's neat to see the reference to the cloud and the rainbow. You've got judgment that comes with God, but you've got the promises of grace and mercy attached to that symbolic rainbow, that, that covenant picture of God keeping uh, his promises to, um, to show grace in his judgment. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, it says, He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. All right, so we see the rainbow popping up in relationship to um, to God. We see the sun show up in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. Uh, it, this is a description of Jesus back in Revelation 1 that we looked at. In his right hand, he, had, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Pillars of fire uh, conjure up images of, of what Israel followed in the Old Testament. You'll remember they followed after the pillar of fire. Um, we see the lion roar uh, of Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, <clears throat> where Jesus is described as the Lion of Judah. It says, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Um, all these are real similar descriptions of Jesus. You may balk at the idea, well, it's called an angel here, and, and Jesus isn't typically referred to as an angel, and yet in the Old Testament, and if you want to go back, I think it's still in our podcast. I preached a whole sermon on the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament being Jesus. There's a lot of reasons to see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament as being Jesus, okay? Um, there is some support for the idea of this not being Jesus, though. The figure is real similar to a figure that we find in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10, verse 5. <clears throat> this is Daniel getting a vision from God. It says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. So this, 
this, this supernatural angelic figure appears, has this great majestic appearance. Um, says, behold, I touched, uh, behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man, greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken these words to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and I came to make you understand what has happened to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. To me, there's no possible way this is Jesus because this, this demonstrates a finite being, as majestic as he is, that Michael has to come and help him against this, this prince of Persia here. Okay, so majestic being has all the appearances of, of things that we might would label and attribute to God or to, to God the Father or God the Son, and yet we see some limitation here to this figure that he needs assistance from other angels to carry out his duties. And so uh, maybe a nod to the idea of this figure in Revelation 10 not being Jesus as well. Um, two reasons why I don't think it's Jesus in Revelation chapter 10 that I do think it's a mighty angel that we see referenced earlier in Revelation 1. If you go back to Revelation chapter 16, and it's not a huge point of, of matter. I think it is worth speculating a little bit about. But uh, as a reminder, after that description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, what's the response of John in verse 17? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. There's this prostrate type worship that ensues when John sees Jesus in chapter one, right? The other reason that I think we can see this as not Jesus, but as an angelic figure comes from Revelation chapter one, verse one. What we find in Revelation 1.1, a passage that we've already looked at, is a five-link chain of communication for how we receive the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Right? We get the book of Revelation from God the Father, right? We get it through a five-link chain of communication. We see God the Father, and we've already seen this in Revelation, God the Father giving this scroll to Jesus, right? Jesus then passing it along to this angel, I think, here in Revelation chapter 10, who then in, in ensuing verses gives it to John, who then writes for us the things that we need to know about the future, about things that God has in store plan-wise for this earth and for, our, uh, for his people, all right? So I think we can see Revelation chapter 10, a fulfillment of what we see in Revelation chapter 1 here. John's not worshiping this being. Um, we see John communicating in the same way that Revelation 1, 1 is talking about, the father giving the son the scroll, the angel giving the scroll to John, and John writing Revelation to the servants based on that knowledge. Now, again, a lot of people think it is Jesus. Um, a lot of people don't. Um, but there's some reasons there why I think that it is not Jesus and can be seen as an angel, which will help shape a little bit of what we look at the remainder of the way. Okay, let's jump into the text this morning, um, and we'll walk through this. First of all, I think as believers, we need to be encouraged by God's authority. 
We need to be encouraged by God's authority that we see here in Revelation chapter 10. For our kids, God is in control of everything, everywhere. Now, to say that this is not Jesus is not to dismiss Jesus' authority because this angel shows up representing Christ and representing all that Christ possesses. Shows up in a majestic uh, appearance, has a little scroll open in his hand. I do think this is the same scroll as the one that we've already seen. It's now open because the seals have been broken. Okay, so we've got the scroll now that's open. We can see into the mysteries of God's plan. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. You see authority being demonstrated here by the, by the placing of the feet. Anytime feet are placed in scripture, it symbolizes authority, it symbolizes sovereignty, symbolizes possession. Remember the children of Israel were told that wherever their foot play, uh, found placement in the promised land, God would give it to them. Uh, in Joshua, there's even the picture of um, Joshua bringing in these kings and putting feet upon their necks to demonstrate sovereign authority and ownership now of these kings that they had conquered. And so I think that's the picture here. There's authority, there's sovereignty being demonstrated through this picture of this great majestic angel who represents Jesus, I think comes with the authority of Jesus, showing his authority and his sovereignty over land and sea. God's authority extends throughout the whole earth. As a reminder to us, lest we forget, God controls everything everywhere. The angelic figure's presence shows sovereign authority over creation. Now, this won't have as much meaning now, but when we get to Revelation chapter 13, just to give you a little advance notice, there's going to be a great beast that comes out of the sea and a great beast that comes out of the land. And it's worth noting here that before we ever get to the beast of the sea and the beast of the land, Jesus acknowledges authority comes from heaven over both those locations. Man, as scary as those things are, we've talked about this, Jesus is the most scariest figure in the book of Revelation. He is the one to be feared more than any other thing in the book of Revelation, right? He possesses all authority. He possesses all the power. Anything else that we see in Revelation that poses a threat gets its authority and power from Jesus. And that's again demonstrated to us in this picture. Man, if this is not Jesus, how much more authority does Jesus have if he sends an angel to represent that type of authority? Man, as, as huge as this picture is of this, this figure standing in the sea and on the land, it pales in comparison to the one who created this being, right? So if it's not Jesus, man, how much more glorious is Jesus? Which again is another reason why I'm okay with not seeing this as Jesus. Because man, this just makes Jesus even better than this figure, right? He's better than the figure that he creates that can stand on land and sea. God's authority extends throughout the whole earth prepares us to not fear those beasts that are going to come from both the land and the sea in chapter 13. I think number two, we can also see that God's word is for all those who occupy the earth. Not only does God's sovereignty extend over all the earth, land and sea, but God's word and God's message and God's gospel is for all those on the land and the sea as well. We see at the end of this chapter, and I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This idea of prophesying, we'll get to this, but man, it, it carries the idea of, of talking about things in the present in light of what you know is coming in the future. And so if John is supposed to talk about things in the present to these kings and nations and peoples and languages, 
in light of what's coming in the future, I mean, it just demonstrates that God is sovereign, not just over the land and the sea, but the people that occupy the land and the sea, right? And that there's, there, there is a message for all of those people that come from God, right? So his authority extends to all the earth. His word is for all those who occupy the earth, both land and sea. And we can be encouraged by God's authority here that as we continue to navigate through Revelation, as we continue to see a lot of mysterious things, a lot of things that are to come in the future, a lot of horrific things that we have to wrestle with about death and destruction, we can be encouraged this morning that God has all authority over all those things, right? Number two, we can be satisfied or we need to be satisfied with God's mystery. We need to be satisfied with God's mystery. This angel, this angelic figure shows up with a little scroll open in his hand. And when he called out like this lion roaring, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. It's clear, I think, from this passage that, that God reveals information that could have been written down to John. This isn't unintelligible roars and sounds that are coming in these forms of thunders. It's, it's intelligible language because John intends to write it down, has every uh, desire to write it down, and is stopped by a voice from heaven, most likely God, telling him to seal this information up and not to write it down. So there's an idea here of God not revealing certain things to his people. Um, which I want to give, make two points from this. First of all, for our kids, God keeps some things hidden from us. And man, for our parents, like I think this is such an important thing to drill into the heads of our kids at an early age that none of us are surprised when they get older and start asking questions that we can't answer. We've, we, we, we never have an intention of being able, able to answer all the questions that come up. Sometimes people get dissatisfied with, with the God of Christianity because we can't answer certain questions, theological questions, or just like real life questions, like why does this happen? Why did this happen? Right, those questions get raised sometimes, and, and when we as parents can't answer them, sometimes there's a dissatisfaction from, from kids who are growing up into their faith saying, Man, if we can't answer those questions, then I'm not interested. I think it's so important for us to portray to our kids I mean, there's some questions that just don't get answered, and we're okay with that. We're satisfied with that. We're satisfied with what is told to us. We're satisfied with some of it remaining a mystery. We're satisfied with pursuing the things that we can know and being content with the things that we can't. Because God is telling us here, there's some things that are intentionally hidden from you. In relationship here, there's something regarding these thunders, these judgments that God decides not to tell us. He's told us about the seven seals. He's telling us about the seven trumpets. He's going to tell us about the seven bowls. There's seven thunders here that are being talked about. Probably seven similar type judgments that we're talking about with the seals and the trumpets and the, and the bowls. There may be seven other judgments that are coming that we're just not told about. It's also possible that he doesn't write them down because God will not bring them about. There's some commentators who believe that that what God is saying here is that, man, the time of repentance is over. They're, they're obviously not responding to the judgments, and so I'm not going to even bring these judgments upon the earth because repentance still will not happen. 
We don't know. There, there's a lot of mystery surrounding these thunders and why they're, why they're even communicated to us here that they exist and then they're not written about. But what I do think we can take away from this is, one, God is necessarily revealing the details of his future plan. He is necessarily revealing the details of his future plan. Meaning, we talked about this last week, that there is general revelation and special revelation, right? There are things that can be known about God by all people for all times and all places, right? People that lived a thousand years ago can look around and see in creation the deity of God, the power of God, his eternal nature, that something had to be in existence before we got here. Something had to create the things that we see. Something more powerful than us, something eternal or at least far longer living than us. Those are things that can be known about God all time, all places, all peoples. There are specific things about God that we would not know if he did not choose to reveal those things. The whole book of Revelation we wouldn't know. We wouldn't be able to discern this through the times and the seasons. We wouldn't be able to figure out some of this stuff if God wasn't revealing it to us through his word. God is necessarily revealing the, few, the details of his future plan. God has revealed crucial information in special ways to mankind so that we can better understand him and his plan. This is a book about revelation. That's why it's called Revelation, right? It's a book about revealing God's plans. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, God tells John what, you know, what he's supposed to do with this. It says, um, 19, sorry, verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. I mean, Jesus has caught John up into this experience to reveal things to John that will then be revealed to the churches. God says, you need to know about this, and I want to tell you about it. He goes on to say in Revelation 22.10, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near communicate this stuff basically write it down circulate it let the churches know about this information god is revealing crucial information in special ways to mankind god chooses to do that doesn't have to chooses to reveal specific details about his plan so that mankind can know him better god has faithfully revealed what we need to know about him and to bring others to know him god has faithfully revealed what we need to know him and to bring others to know him. Amos chapter 3, an Old Testament passage that talks about God graciously revealing the details of his plans to his people. Amos chapter 3, verse 7, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Jesus talks about this. talks about how his friends, God lets his friends in on some of the details of the plans. Like God says, my, my closest people, I want them to know what is at work in the future. That's how we operate too, right? Like when we have things that we're planning to do, oftentimes the first people we tell are those that are closest to us. That's how God is functioning. He says, I don't do things without cluing in my creation, my people, into the things that I'm doing. Why? So that he can get glory for it. So he can get glory for it. As, it. as it comes about, as it transpires, we can give God glory for the things that we know he was going to do as we see those things unfold. Daniel chapter 2 is a reminder to us, the one who holds the key to the mysteries. Daniel chapter 2 verse 28, as Daniel tries to unpack the vision that's been given to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel answered the king and said, no wise man 
enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar has really created an impossible situation where they've got to tell him, uh, he's got to tell him the, the meaning of this dream. You know, what have, I, what have I dreamed here? What does it mean? Daniel says, nobody can do that. Nobody, nobody, can, nobody can tell you this. Verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. We serve a God who understands the mysteries of how this world works, and he reveals those to us. Let's just look at a couple of passages real quick of how God has revealed mysteries to us already. In Romans chapter 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. We've talked about this, that the gospel uh, was steadily being revealed from the Old Testament into the New Testament. There was things that remained mysterious about the gospel. Let's look at some of the passages that tell us some things that, that remained mysterious about God's plan to save man from his sin through faith in Jesus Christ forever for his glory. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, In him, talking about Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Talking about some of the mystery of the inner workings of the gospel that remained veiled at times, but now are being fully revealed. Ephesians chapter three, verse one. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What's the mystery? This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We've talked about this, right? That, that there, was, there, was, there, was, um, there was an inclusion in the Old Testament. There, there's, there's examples of Gentiles coming to faith in, in the God of Israel in the Old Testament. Rahab's a great example. Ruth's a great example. But man, in the, in the New Testament... Specifically in the book of Acts, we see that really take off, this clear understanding by the disciples and the early church planters that the gospel is for all peoples, all tribes, all nations, all tongues, not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And, and Paul's proclaiming that was a mystery that's now being made not a mystery anymore. It's being revealed on the grand, on the grand stage here. Colossians chapter 2, verse 2. Colossians 2.2 2 says that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Talks about Christ being God's mystery. Why would that be the case? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter's talking about how even in the Old Testament, there was still a lack of clarity about some aspects of the gospel. They didn't fully understand some of the inner workings of the gospel and Christ coming in the form that he came in. And Peter says that mystery, that, that, that thing that had been veiled for some time is now being openly revealed to you. No more mystery there. God's mysterious plan has been revealed. He necessarily reveals the details we need to know. But number two, God is providentially withholding aspects of his future plan. Lest we begin to think that God owes us an explanation for everything, we are reminded throughout Scripture that there are some things that remain a mystery. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. There are certain things that God keeps hidden from us intentionally. I think that's the big point of what we see in Revelation chapter 10 here. It's being intentionally withheld from us. John is commanded to seal up the message of the thunders. And it's in times like this when we, are, when we don't have answers to questions that we have that we have to trust God's purposes, purposes that we find in Romans eight twenty eight, in areas that we don't have answers for. He providentially withholds some of this information from us. The main point, I don't know what the thunders are. I don't know if they do happen or if they don't happen. Have they been canceled? I don't know. The main point, I think, is that all of the details of the future are not revealed to us. Be cautious in speculation and be comforted that God remains in control. And that's why I think it's so hard to shift into that camp where there's a lot of dates and a lot of um, expectations for when God's coming back, a lot of searching for signs in the heavens and a lot of searching the newspapers and, and internet articles about things that are happening around the world. I think you have to be really cautious about trying to take worldly events and apply them to what we see in Scripture and say, oh, it's happening, it's happening. Because, man, there's a big chunk potentially here that we're not even told about yet. Big chunk that's just completely, I mean, it's just a big gap here in Revelation where, where, where Jesus says, don't write that down. Right? Seven thunders. Think about the time that we've spent in the seven seals and the seven trumpets, and we still have the seven bowls, a whole section that's not even included in Revelation. We're not told why. Just remains a mystery for reasons that we don't fully understand, but potentially a big chunk that would really prohibit us from speculating too much about when all this stuff happens. The encouragement, again, to our kids, be satisfied with God's mystery. Man, imagine serving a God that we knew everything about, who all of his mystery was completely removed. Some type of God that we, that we would really find glory in serving in, I don't think. Not a lot, a lot of, um, not a lot of uh, a mystery that would remain if we were told everything, right? God keeps some of that hidden. 
loves to share with his friends the details of his plans, but does choose to keep some of it hidden. Be encouraged by God's authority in this chapter. Be satisfied with the mystery that exists. Right? We, could, we could easily get hung up on what's not told to us in Revelation 10. We could spend way too much time speculating about the thunders. Or, number three, we could be grounded in what is certain. We can be grounded in God's certainty. For our kids, God will keep all of his promises. What is being told to us in this chapter? We've already seen the authority aspect, that, that God remains in control of everything. And no matter what horrific beast comes out of the land or the sea, the foot of God's representative is already there declaring sovereign authority and control over that area. Verse 5, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. So he's, again, a figure who came from heaven, puts his foot on the sea, puts his foot on the land, and then swears by the one who created all three of those places, right? The one who created the heaven, the one who created the sea, the one who created the land, everything in it. I swear by that being that there will be no more delay. That in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. There's some certain things that are being sworn by here. Certain things that will happen. First of all, God has a specific timetable for fulfilling his plans. He has a specific timetable for fulfilling his plans. This angelic figure declares to us that the days of the trumpet call, when that seventh angel sounds that trumpet, the mystery of God will be fulfilled. The one that has been announced previously to his servants, the prophets, this is not something that, that is unusual. We go back to the Old Testament. And we see God swearing in the Old Testament as well. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be Finished. I hope to tie in Daniel chapter 12 a little bit more uh, next week as we continue into chapter 11, the correlation between these two chapters. But we see again the idea of the, the swearing that at a certain specific time, these things will be fulfilled. Man, that should be such an encouragement to us that even though we may not fully understand some of these mysteries, that there is a set time in future history when these things will be fulfilled. The perceived delay is quickly coming to an end. The seventh trumpet will signify the full revelation of the mysteries of God. It's coming. It's coming. God has a specific timetable. But number two, God also has specific methods for fulfilling his plans. God has specific methods for fulfilling his plans. So God says, I'm going to bring about the mysteries that have been revealed previously, but I'm going to do it in specific ways. If we go back to Revelation chapter 10, and this is where, okay, so typically you go off to Bible school and you're supposed to learn Greek and Hebrew. Um, and there's some really important reasons for doing so. But a lot of people don't have time to learn Greek and Hebrew. 
I went off to Bible school and didn't have time to learn Greek and Hebrew. I was just like, I got other things. I got. I took. I took one Greek class. Um, unfortunately, because it wasn't required, um, and I was at a point in life where I did a lot of things that were required and not a lot of things on my own initiative. I didn't pursue Greek and Hebrew. Um, I, I think that we are thankfully in a in a day and age where we don't have to have that knowledge because so much is given to us through. Uh, social media resources, internet resources. I mean, we can get and dig deep into the Greek and Hebrew if you don't have time to learn the Greek and Hebrew. Just having some handy commentaries as you're studying scripture, oftentimes they will draw attention to the Greek and the Hebrew when needed to make a valid point. This is a great example of an area where you would just completely gloss over this and not realize But in Revelation chapter 10, verse 7, it says, But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. That word announced, um, it's uh, it's the verb form of gospel. It's the verb form of gospel, just as it was gospelized, basically, to my prophets gospelized to my servants. So it should immediately conjure up a, an understanding that what we're talking about here, the mystery of God being fulfilled, it's tied back to the gospel that we've already read about in the New Testament being tied to the mysteries of God. God's good gospel plans are going to be carried out when that seventh trumpet blows. Plans to save mankind from his sin through faith in Jesus Christ for his glory forever. Jump ahead to Revelation chapter 11. So we're talking about God's plans are going to be fulfilled. God's promises are going to be kept. The mystery is going to be fulfilled. What does that mean? Well, let's, let's just jump ahead real quick and see what happens when the seventh trumpet sounds. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever." And ever. I don't have to have a whole lot of details about what that looks like to get excited about the kingdom of this world coming to an end and all the flaws of the leadership of this world coming to an end and there being inaugurated a kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and he reigns forever and ever. We never have to worry about a new leader coming to power. We never have to worry about things being changed, going from good to bad going from bad to worse. It's a state that we can look forward to when that trumpet sounds and Jesus comes and he takes over in physical, visible format. He comes and rules and reigns forever. God's plans coming to fruition, all the mysteries of the gospel that have already been revealed head knowledge-wise, we get to see them fulfilled in real time. Right? We talk about resurrections, we talk about Jesus coming back, us being reunited with, with loved ones, believers that have gone before us, all that culminating here with the kingdom of the Lord coming to hand. God's methods are both sweet and bitter. We'll wrap up with this. The voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many things and nations and languages and kings. I think the idea here of it being both sweet and bitter, one is that the gospel is certainly sweet in our mouths. It is a, it is a good message. 
It is a, it is a sweet message of salvation that we are told to proclaim to others. I think the bitterness comes, the bitterness gets tied into the idea of that message of salvation bringing suffering to those that respond, right? We've seen plenty of suffering in the book of Revelation for the followers of Christ. It's also a message of bitterness for those who reject the gospel and it brings judgment upon them. It's a bitter message. We see in Revelation chapter 11, verse 10, again, jump into the next chapter. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, talking about these two witnesses that we'll get to, and they make merry and they exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. What's being described here is two people, two witnesses that may represent the entire church, but here in this, in this situation, two people who tell people about the gospel and they are described by people who reject the gospel as people who torment the earth. We've already seen that term torment. Remember the, the, the satanic, the, uh, the demonic locusts that come on the scene and torment the earth, right? With their stings and their bites. I mean, that's what, that's what torment is to me. Here on the flip side, on the other side, those who have rejected Jesus, torment looks like people reminding you constantly of your need to repent of your sin and get right with Jesus who is coming to rule and reign forever. That's torment. That's bitterness. So the, the message is bitter in the sense that those who reject it want nothing to do with it and it torments their soul. I think also the idea is found in Romans 9.1. Remember Paul talks about the anguish that he feels over his, over his people, over the Jews who reject the gospel. I mean, the moment that we really embrace the gospel message and begin to share it with, with friends and family members and loved ones, it, there is a level of bitterness for us, a, a distaste, not a, not a rejection of the gospel, but a sorrowful feeling that I'm not being received by the ones that I'm sharing the gospel with. They're rejecting it and, it, and it creates anguish. It should create anguish in us like it does Paul to see those not responding to the gospel. From an application standpoint, assimilate the word into your life and into the lives of others. Assimilate the word into your life and into the lives of others. We're going to unpack that here as we close. The question that I want us to ask, though, as we talk about this, is the Bible a mystery because of a lack of study or a lack of revelation? When you think about things about the scriptures that you don't understand, things that still remain a mystery to you, do they remain a mystery to you because you have failed to study and, and learn and know what has been revealed to you? Or is it a mystery because God has withheld that from us? That, that should be challenging. Like we should really grapple with that. Grapple with that. Is the Bible mysterious still because I've just failed to commit time and energy to knowing it? Or are there things that are still mysterious to me because it wouldn't matter how much time and attention I gave to that, I would never have that revealed to me. Right? The seven thunders, no matter how many commentaries and books you read, you should never walk away thinking, I understand the seven thunders now. Because God has intentionally withheld that information from us. He's not going to tell us. He's not going to tell us. So it doesn't matter how much time and attention and study you give to it. That's why we didn't even talk about it that long this morning. You're not going to really ever know. You're not going to know what it is. But there are some things that are probably still mysterious to you that should not be. I think all of our goals should be to get to heaven and to find out things and it not be that I should have known this all along. I don't want to get to heaven and realize things that I should have known my whole life. 
And they were revealed to me. They were given to me. Maybe an Old Testament person shouldn't have understood it, but I certainly should have understood it in the New Testament. I just didn't give attention to it. Just didn't really seek a, a level of knowledge about that. Didn't really seek to know God in the ways that he wanted me to know him. Because that's really what we're talking about here. God is revealing what he wants us to know about him and his plan. What a tragedy for us to get to heaven and to find out things that we should have already found out here. Assimilating the word of God into our life and into the lives of others. John and most likely all Christians have a responsibility to prophesy during this time, during this time that we live in right now. Again, when we, what we mean by that is proclaiming truth in the present in light of what is coming in the future. Okay, give you an example, Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 2. We're not talking about prophesying and, and coming up with new revelation. We're talking about communicating truth in the present in light of what we know is coming in the future. That's what we're talking about. We all have a responsibility to do that. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 8. Real similar passage here. God talking to Ezekiel, but you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, and behold, a hand was stretched out to me. And behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. And it had writing on the front and on the back, real similar to the scroll that we've seen in Revelation, right? There were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. There's some bitterness in this scroll too, just like we're seeing in Revelation. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1. He said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Again, I'm reading this to you just so you don't think Revelation is some mysterious book that's unlike anything else in Scripture. This is like exactly what we're reading in Revelation, right? And nobody spends like tons of time speculating, what is this? What's going on here in Ezekiel, right? He said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them, for you are not sent to a people of foreign speech in a hard language, which is the house of Israel, not to many peoples of foreign speech in a hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I sent you to such, they would listen to you, but the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. God's telling them to eat this book and go communicate the truth of it to these people. And he also tells them, they're not going to listen to you. It's going to be a bitter experience probably for you. You're supposed to go communicate lamentation and woe and destruction to people that are not going to listen. They're going to reject you. They're going to think you're tormenting them. But the idea here is that Ezekiel is to own this revelation. He is, to, he is to assimilate it into his life, meaning he is to ingest it. He is to take it in. He is to feast upon it. He is to know the truth of God's word so that he can portray that to other people, so that he can share that with other people. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul's like, man, we're not coming with a message that everybody's going to like. We're not like a peddler who's trying to, to reach the masses 
and trying to come up with a scheme to sell something. We're here to communicate the truth, and for some of y'all, that's death. For some of y'all, that's life. Some of you, it's a sweet aroma. For some of you, it's a bitter aroma. He says, but we have the responsibility to communicate the gospel. We have to share that with others. And so I think for us, as we read this, still a lot of mystery in this chapter, but John's commanded to eat this book, to possess it personally, to make its contents completely his so that he can prophesy and share it with every tribe, nation, and tongue. There's a lot of passages in Scripture that talk about us feasting upon the word, right? Jeremiah chapter 15. We really will close with this. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 15. O Lord, you know and remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Jeremiah talking about feasting upon God's word. Psalm 119, 103 talks about God's word being sweet as honey. 1 Peter 2, 2 and 1 Corinthians 3 talk about us feasting upon the milk of the word, but us getting to a point where we need more than just the milk of the word and being able to ingest the meat of the word, right? So for me, as I, as I look at this and I read through this, it's a reminder that we should be assimilating the word into our life, meaning that it should, it should occupy all aspects of our life, not just some head knowledge, that it, that it really shapes the way that we think and feel and act on a weekly basis. And just to give you that personal example again, when I'm, in, when I'm in the ultrasound room and I see that my child is no longer alive, the fact that Romans 1 has been assimilated into my life, not just known for theological discussions, but really assimilated into my life that I can look at an ultrasound and see that my child is no longer living and know that he's with Jesus. Know that he's with Jesus because of things that I've done prior to that experience, really getting myself into God's word and feasting upon it so that when I'm ever faced with that situation, and and really what set me out to do that is that I never wanted to look at somebody who was going through the the death of an infant or miscarriage and say, I just don't know. I've never really thought about it. You know, for someone to come to me and say, you know, give me some hope. Like, you know, what what happens to my child right here? For me to say, no, I don't know. So it led me to feast upon the word and then I get to be the beneficiary of that when I'm going through that situation. And that's true for all kinds of situations. God has revealed to us the things that we need to know about who he is, how he functions, what his plan is for now and the future. We have a responsibility to feast upon that, to assimilate that into our life, not just here, but here so that it, that it affects every aspect of who we are. And the question I would ask again is, is the Bible a mystery because of a lack of study? or a lack of revelation. Some things are meant to remain a mystery. Some things are very clear in Scripture. Some things you have to dig a little bit for and work for to really know. Remember, Jesus says, there's some things I talk about in parables because I want people to have to really think and really pay attention and and really be a follower of me to get it and to understand it. It's not real clear. That's what the Holy Spirit's given to us for. The Holy Spirit helps bring to light those precious truths that have been given to us. Our family worship questions this week, really geared towards uh, parents, but certainly for all individuals, for us to wrestle with, what are some questions that we have about God and his plans? Like if we were just to sit down and say, I mean, I, I don't know this, I don't know this, I don't know this, I don't know this, I have this question. And then number two, can we get answers to those questions? Does the Bible answer the questions that you have? Why 
or why not? So certainly for our parents to explore this with the kids, or some questions that maybe they are asking about God and his plans, help lead them to find those answers in Scripture, help lead them to be content if Scripture doesn't answer those questions, to be content with those mysteries. Jesus, we come to you this morning and we praise you and thank you that even though this chapter remains veiled in a lot of mystery, there's some real clarity that's given to us in this passage. Father, we thank you and praise you uh, that you are a God of authority that extends over all your creation. We thank you for the reminder this morning that, that you, through your word, have revealed authority to us. God, we're thankful that you're a mysterious God that has ways and purposes that are beyond our understanding. God, that, that ought to give comfort to us that we serve a, a, an inexhaustible God. Father, I pray that we would be content with what you have told us, that we would be content with the things that you haven't told us, that we would cling to the mysteries that have been revealed, that we would treasure the knowledge that's been given to us of the gospel and how we can be saved. God, I pray that we would be encouraged knowing that there is a future set day in history where that trumpet will blow and the kingdom of this world will come to an end and Jesus will rule and reign forever. I pray that that truth, what we know about the future, would cause us to, in the words of Scripture, prophesy. In the words of today, share it with other people. Share today what we know about the future. Father, help us to realize that we need to know Scripture if we're going to be able to do that effectively. If, if you expected John and Ezekiel to feast, to eat the Word before trying to tell others about it, God, help us to see there's a prerequisite before we can really go out and offer hope to people that we love. We have to know the Word. We have to, we have to, um, we have to eat the Word. God, I pray that we would see that need in our own life. We'd be faithful to do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.